phones or use the bulletin and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We'll be finishing up Ecclesiastes next Sunday. We're finally there. Boys and girls, make sure you have your uh, children's bulletin. You have your own translation in there. We'll be referring to a place you can take notes and ask us questions. And before we go uh, to God's word, let's go together in prayer. Father God, as we come before your word, Lord, we are awed that you would speak to us, that you would condescend to come down in language that we might know your will, know your gospel, be changed by it and follow after you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do just those things this morning, that we would be different because of our encounter with you in your word. Oh, do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, I want to get your mindset in this text before we read it. I want you to think about another Pixar movie. We talked about one last week. I got another one for you this week. This is the uh, science fiction one called Wally, about the little robot. Remember Wally? There's this, it's very interesting, very interesting. Kind of takes some pot shots at Walmart in there. And, um, There's a scene in there where there's thousands of humans living on this gigantic spaceship. And what was supposed to be like a very short, maybe a year or two, kind of trek around the solar system while these robots cleaned up all the garbage on Earth and they could come back and rehabilitate the world, turned into stay in space, Earth is not habitable, just stay there. And so a generation came and went, a generation came and went. It turns out it's been 700 years years that they've been on this ship and not on earth here's the captain some stuff has happened and he realizes they could actually return to earth and there's a possible of of life happening there they so they want to go and so he's trying to get the ship back to earth but Otto, that's the computer looking thing the the kind of space age looking steering wheel there he says no he won't let him go there because he's got a subroutine in his commands that says keep the human race alive no matter what and so he knows if i keep them on this ship they'll survive If we go, if we try to go back to earth, there's a chance they could live. So he overrides the captain. He won't do it. There's this great scene where the captain and the computer are arguing. And finally, the computer says, you will survive. And the captain goes, we don't want to just survive. We want to live. And that sentiment, that urge is the final push of Ecclesiastes here. That sentiment is what this pastor philosopher is saying after 11 chapters. God's people, we live under the sun too. We breathe the same air. We walk the same ground. But because of grace, we don't just endure and survive under the sun. We have real abiding joy and pleasure. We live under the sun by grace. That's where we are. So let's remember that. Let's remember the bigger picture too. He's still talking to those in the religious community. He's still, he's told us that, look, it is wisdom to live in grace, to give our heart to the gospel and to live under God's approval. That's wisdom. He's taught us that we have to, in that wisdom, we have to defiantly remind ourselves of grace daily. That's wisdom. We have to do that because we saw last week, we don't know what's going to come next in life. And that ignorance, if it's not 
joyfully embraced will cause us to be afraid and do nothing, but instead, by grace, we take risks in an unknown future to do, to do more things that God could bless instead of being paralyzed by fear. And now, as he's wrapping up, he's going to remind us that, look, God wants you to enjoy life. So much so that he says in this passage, and, and listen to this, he says, God will actually hold us accountable for how much we have enjoyed life with him. That's a different thought than most of us have about scripture, church stuff, Christianity. That God's going to hold us accountable for how much we've enjoyed him. So see, as we come to this text, before we read it, we really need to have a gut check and ask ourselves, does our understanding of grace, does it merely help us endure this life? Or are we really enjoying this life by grace? With that question, let's turn now to God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, starting in verse 7, and we're reading all the way through chapter 12, verse 8. This is God's Word. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, And the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. And the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along. And desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. This is God's Word. Kind of a downer of a text. You're supposed to end on a high note, right? But he seems to be ending on a downer. But we're going to dig into this and see that there's actually great joy and hope for us in this passage. Because he wants us to see that God's people rejoice in life. Regardless of age, regardless of circumstance, we do that by remembering God through all of our life. I want to tell you where I'm going today. I kind of want to give you a theme you can remember, boys and girls. Maybe you want to write this down and ask your parents about it over lunch. Here's where we're going to go today. 
since God holds us accountable for being happy, we should walk with Him in the good and the bad. You see, the wisdom of God, it's going to give us a different kind of reckoning, a different kind of remembering, and a different kind of rebelling. Let's jump in and see that. First thing we see in this passage here is a different kind of reckoning. So Solomon here, or this pastor philosopher who's writing under the guise of Solomon, he's wrapping up his book. This is his last shot in the gun. And what does he go for? He chooses savor the sweetness of life. Enjoy it. This whole closing section that we've been in the last couple weeks, again, it's addressed to those who claim to follow God. And it's all about our joy here and now. Because we need to be reminded, dear flock, don't punt this. So often we in church world, like I said last week, whenever we get to parts of Scripture that kind of critique life, we tend to say, oh, he's talking to the world. He's talking to unbelievers. No, he's talking about us. He's critiquing believers. He's trying to urge those who claim allegiance to God, who claim to have wisdom, who claim to live in grace. Here's what that should look like. So he is addressing us. So let's receive this. Because what he's telling us here is, look, living under the sun and all the frustration, all the junk, doing so as the people of God means we enjoy and savor life. God's people, those who have wisdom, are to be known as those who, in the midst of all the junk of life, they're the people who enjoy it. They're the people who savor life. This is what the Sabbath, by the way, is all about for Christians. The Sabbath is about enjoying and relishing and digging deep into the sweetness of life. It's not a, about a list of what you can and can't do. It's a day to enjoy, to savor. See, that's a foundational principle that we have got to get. Those changed by grace, those living in the reality of the gospel, enjoy life. They savor its sweetness. Does that characterize us? As Christians, is that what we're known for? I mean, life's not easy. I mean, difficult times, dark days come and are coming and have come. And if, and if we're not grounded in the joy that comes from grace, when those dark times come, we won't have joy, will we? What do we do? We hunker down, we hold our breath, so to speak, and we wait for that big struggle to pass so we can end this hardship and, quote, get on with the rest of our life, right? That's how we think. But if we embrace the grace of God as it's offered to us in the gospel, we will have the resources to have joy in the midst of those trials. We won't hold our breath until the trials are over. We will see this is our life. We're not waiting for this to end so we can live. We live now. We don't just survive. We thrive by God's grace. That's what it means to be godly, to have a deep joy in the midst of all these things. Now, when I say the word, the sentence, wow, that person is godly. What comes to your mind is probably different than someone who has deep abiding joy. 
I mean, it's almost shocking for us to say that godliness means having deep abiding joy in the midst of the junk of life. It's shocking. But look how shocking verse 9 is in this context. Look with me at verse 9, what he says. He says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. How often do you think Scripture comes to somebody and says, Hey, you know what? Do what your heart says to do. If you see it, go after it. Usually that's like a description of the wicked, right? And you, you expect that, oh, here comes the judgment. But what does he come? He says, hey, rejoice. Go after your heart. Again, who's he talking to? He's talking to the wise, those who've been changed by grace, those who've been given a new heart, who've been given new eyes. And so he says, if grace has changed you, if that's real, walk in that change. Believe it. We would say it in our live in the reality of the gospel. God's grace has changed you, so live as if that's true. Now, before you think, what's well, not me? Youth here in this context basically means anyone who's young enough not to be worn out. So, as we say here, all y'all, okay, are youth. See, if we read this verse in the light of the principle, of the command to have joy, of the command to rejoice, doesn't that just kind of turn on its head completely the traditional idea of judgment? God wants us to enjoy ourselves, and he says here he will judge us for how well we rejoice. See, we assume what? Oh, God's judgment's coming. What's that mean? God's going to get you for that. God doesn't like you to have fun. You're having too much fun. So live a boring life to avoid God's judgment. If it's fun, if it's enjoyable, if it's pleasurable, God probably doesn't like it. You shouldn't do it. Am I wrong, right? Isn't this kind of the assumption? But no, that's not what it says here. Coming after verse 7 and 8, this has to be about relishing life, about enjoying life. For all those things, what things? Walking in the side, in the side of your eyes, walking in the ways of your heart, God's going to judge you for those things. See, the people out there who don't know grace, who we need to introduce to grace, who live under the sun and are worn down by a world under the sun, they live in sadness and stress. God's people shouldn't because we live in grace. And he's going to judge us for how much we have actually walked in that grace as his people. What an amazing thought. You see, what this does is this challenges our ideas about freedom, especially what our culture assumes is true about freedom. Our culture is what? All about choice without limits. Freedom then is what? Freedom from any kind of constraint. Don't tell me what I can do. I can do anything I want. That's what philosophers call negative freedom. It means freedom from something limiting you. Freedom from constraint. When that kind of freedom becomes the chief value, the only sin that's not tolerated is intolerance. This is what we see in our world today. Negative freedom has become one of the only absolutes our culture subscribes to. And one of the reasons that we struggle so much with that, that it just bugs us in our hearts, is because Scripture is not interested in negative freedom at all. Scripture is interested in what philosophers call 
positive freedom. That's the freedom to pursue something good. See, Christianity is all about positive freedom. It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's about flourishing under God's grace. Because that grace changes you and sets you free from what holds you back. So you can pursue the things in your heart and the things you see. Because God put those there for you to enjoy. What an incredible thought if we believe that. See, this verse actually tells us as believers, guess what? Live in the desires of your heart because you've been given a new heart. Now, this is not a license to sin, but instead, this is a reminder that grace offers us the power to be who we were meant to be before sin messed us up. Let's say that again. Grace gives us the power to be who we were meant to be before sin messed us up. What an incredible thought. See, that's a different kind of reckoning, isn't it? That's a different kind of day of of judgment. This is when those in Christ will be judged. Not for if we were good enough. The gospel handles that. We don't stand as Christians before judgment. Oh, did I make the cut? No, Christ was cut so we can make the cut of God's holiness. Instead, did we rejoice enough? Did we do enough? I'm convinced that our Lord Jesus had been reading this passage of Ecclesiastes that day when he said the parable of the talents. You know the parable of the talents, right? The guy comes, the king or whatever, a rich guy, he takes his top three servants. He says, okay, here's $1,000, here's 500 bucks, and here's 100 bucks. I'm going on a trip. Show me what you can do with him. He comes back. This guy doubled it. This guy got all the money. This guy buried it because he was afraid. And what, how does he judge him? Good and faithful servant. Good and faithful servant. You're bad. We got a problem. It's exactly what this passage is saying. God gives us his grace. He changes us. He makes us new people. And he says, go do what I've meant for you to do in this world. And so often we're like, oh, I got to make sure God doesn't get mad at me. I got to make sure I stay holy. I got to make sure I stay pure. I better just hunker down and do something inside these walls. And our reckoning will be, why didn't you do something with what the grace I gave you? What if we believed in that kind of reckoning coming forward? How would it change us if we believed such a judgment was coming? How would it change our community if this church suddenly lived as if we were going to be judged on how well we rejoiced? I think we would mess up Orangeburg for the gospel. Because that's a different kind of reckoning and a different kind of motivation. But this text also shows us a different kind of remembering. Look with me at uh, chapter 12, verse 1 there, what it says. It says, remember also your creator in the days of... Of your youth. It sounds almost like a letdown, doesn't it? Here's this big thing. Now, what do we do with all this? Remember. What? And I'm not the only one who thinks it's kind of a letdown. I came across this amazing quote by um, Abano, the lead singer of U2. We've, we've used him before. He's very philosophical. He's a fellow believer, a leader in culture, so it's good to see these things. He has a lot of influence. Here's what he says about Ecclesiastes He says, Look, Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books. It's a book about a character who wants to find out why he's alive, why he was created. He tries knowledge. He tries wealth. He tries experience. He tries everything. You hurry to the end of the book to find out why, and it says, remember your creator. In a way, it's such a letdown. Yet, it isn't. You see, what's he getting at there? What is Ecclesiastes getting at here? What are we missing? 
to remember our Creator is to root ourselves in the grace He's been offering. To remember, to believe, to follow after, or as we would say it today, embracing the gospel is remembering the Creator. See, remembering is not about trivia. It's about authenticity. Really live as you say you believe. That's remembering your Creator. Really commit yourself to following after this Jesus that you took public vows that you would. Be authentic in what you say. Remember your Creator. Embrace the gospel He has offered you. See, to remember is to be rooted in the grace of God. It's to live in the reality that in the gospel God approves of us and wants us to have joy. We need to remember that. Because some days are harder than other, and sometimes it's easy to forget, isn't it? So these next eight verses, we're not going to go through them all again, but basically what they do is they outline three specific kinds of tough times, all marked out by the word before. So if you want to take a pen and find the words before, there's one in verse 1, there's one in uh, verse 2, I believe, and there's one, I think, in verse 6. Circle that word before, and those are the three kinds of areas you really need to make sure you're remembering the Creator, that you're really grounded in the Gospel. The first one in verse 1 is basically, look, before the fears and vexations and irritants of life pile up, before those bad days rob us of all our joy, remember your Creator, because if you don't, those days will overwhelm you. The second one is in verses 2 through 5. He's basically, it's a long extended metaphor basically saying, look, before our body wears out in the long process that saps away joy and pleasure before death finally comes, before that happens, remember your Creator. I want to go back through just a couple of those verses real quick because he really wants us to feel this. This is a great example of just how the Old Testament is alive and how God's Word changes you and really speaks to your emotions. Look with me at verses 3 through 5 here. This long extended metaphor for a body decaying and growing old. Look what he says, picking up in verse 3. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble... And the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. Okay, so we've got what there? We've got the legs that hold the body up. The strong ones are bent. Those are the arms. Grinders are teeth that are wearing out. Your eyes are dimming and so you can't see well out the windows. He goes on, and the doors to the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They're also afraid of what is high, the terrors that are in the way. And then listen to this metaphor for growing old. How can you feel this? The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along. And desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Do you feel that inevitable demise coming? Do you feel that slow sapping of strength? Do you feel this increasing lack of youthful joy? That the pleasures of life and vitality are just slipping away? Do you you feel that regret? That's how Ecclesiastes wants us to think of the onslaught of age. It's very much like that old quote. I don't know who actually said it, but you've probably all heard it. When you get to a certain age, everything hurts. And what doesn't hurt doesn't work. Right? That's kind of what he's saying. It's a long, grudging process. 
See, these are the dark days warned of. These are the dark days we have to prepare for. If you're not rooted in joy from your youth, if you don't remember and walk with God, you will become the stereotypical old, bitter person. I didn't write this. It's right there. Okay, so we, we talk to the kids a lot. Can I talk to you retired age folk? You can feel that temptation to be bitter, can't you? I mean, the world is so different from what you've always known. You feel out of place. Even when things should be familiar, they're, they're just not. And it's frustrating. You don't understand. It seems so simple. All of that will overtake and overwhelm you if you let it. Which takes us to the final before in verse 6. We need to be rooted and grounded in the grace of God. We need to remember our Creator before what? Before death itself comes and shatters life. Verse 6 is another beautiful metaphor. It shows how people are these valuable and valued, crafted works of art and, and, and of commerce, and yet they're fragile and breakable, and eventually our bodies are as useless in death as a broken wheel or a dry well. It's, it's really a sad, beautiful metaphor he uses here. It's an unavoidable picture that death destroys something once valuable. And it's supposed to, as we finished reading it a few minutes ago, it's supposed to kind of leave us as a downer. We're supposed to feel that sickness in our gut. We're supposed to be disappointed or feel even regret at this is what happens to us. Because death is not natural. We weren't meant to grow old and weak and die. It's the result of a curse. And so we won't forget it. Look with me at verse 7. He won't let us forget that. Verse 7 says what? The dust returns to the earth as it was. And the Spirit returns to God who gave it. A clear reference to Genesis 3 where God curses Adam and all his offspring with death as the wages earned for rebellion in the garden. You were made of dust and to dust you shall return. And Ecclesiastes grabs that and says, see, you experience that. You see that curse. We're reminded here, death is a curse. We're all under that curse. We earn it and it's coming. But before all that, what's he say? What's our hope? Remember our Creator. Embrace the grace offered by the Creator. Remember Him before this curse comes. So to root our lives... In grace is to remember the gospel. So how do we prepare for the coming disappointments? How do we prepare for the eventual wearing out of our body? How do we prepare for the curse of death? We remember our creator. Embracing the gospel is remembering the creator. See, this is a different kind of remembering, isn't it? It's not about trivia. It's about having an anchor of hope. It's based on a different kind of reckoning that awaits us. And it leads us to a different kind of rebelling. Everybody turn back now to chapter 11. We're going to look at verse 10, chapter 11. It says this. He commands, remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. i got to tell you, I love this verse. This verse just drove me to almost tears. I actually shouted out loud for joy one day in, in the office as I was studying this week. Let me give you a rigid translation of this uh, from the Hebrew. It would be something along the lines of rebel against the grief and anger in your heart. 
make misery pass right by you. Isn't that a great way to think about that? Rebel against the grief and anger in your heart and just make misery pass you right by. That's a different kind of rebelling, isn't it? We like that kind of rebelling. Here's how we put it for the kids. I want to make sure they get this. Boys and girls, let's get yours out. Let's look at your chapter 11, verse 10. It's kind of in the middle of your translation there. It says this. Just say no to any sadness in your heart because you won't be young very long. You see, boys and girls, it's okay to get sad sometimes. But don't let it control you. God's word tells us that when you're sad, when you're angry, you can actually say out loud, no, Jesus wants me to be happy. I'm serious, you can do it. And if you say that out loud, I want you to come tell me about it and tell me what happens. Now, adults, we're a little bit more sophisticated than that. I know, we're we're more nuanced. But our response should be the same, really. This verse tells us, what do we do? How do we embrace the grace of God? We refuse to submit to stress, pain, sorrow, spite. Don't let those things take up residence in your heart. Rebel against those things and then forcibly remove misery from your life. Now think about this. What does it tell us? Out of all the words he could have used, he uses the word used most often for a rebellion, an insurrection. What does it tell us about those things if we have to rebel against them? It tells us that stress, anger, pain, sadness, those things want to rule our life. They try to rule our life. Even those of us in Christ, those of us who've been given the Holy Spirit, we feel those things trying to control us at times, don't we? I mean, most Christians, we don't walk around in joy. We walk around in a somber angst, even a bit of anger, perhaps depression. Why? Because those things rule us. Yes, I know Jesus and I'm saved by grace, but... And here's my real master and here's how I serve him with my life. See, but God's word says that those who've been changed by grace... That we rise up against the false master of anxiety, the false master of vexation, and we depose it. What a great thought. In grace, we rebel against the fear, the darkness, the pain in our hearts, and instead we submit to the rule and reign of the Creator. In other words, we rebel against these things and we remember our Creator who approves us. God's Word says, who wants us to have joy, he's told us in Ecclesiastes. We say, you want to bring me down and make me live in a somber, sad existence, but my Creator wants me to have joy, inexpressible and full of glory. So I rebel against you and I walk in the wisdom. And again, don't punt this to unbelievers. Don't be like, yeah, those people out there in the world, they should stop doing that. And No, we've been changed by grace. And so we have the resources to rebel and embrace. And until Jesus Christ comes and sets them free by his grace and gives them the positive freedom to be who they're supposed to be, they don't have the ability to rebel. So we don't judge them. We pray for them and share the gospel with them. See, how is that not a mere platitude, though? How, this sounds very like if you do this, you'll be happy. Where is the power? How does this actually work? I want to go back to the very beginning, verse 7, where he tells us, savor life. 
Life is sweet. Life is enjoyable, savored. And notice, unlike every other verse in this passage, he makes no reference to age. He doesn't say, okay, when you're old, savor. When you're not, no. He just says, everybody, savor this. Because by grace, in all of life, we can be free from regret. We can be free from pain by remembering what God has done for us in the gospel. In every age. You see, the gospel has that power because the cursed death on Adam and the cursed death on us is the same curse that Jesus Christ embraced on the cross and destroyed. He died the death that we should have died for our sin. And so we no longer live under the curse of death. This is why Paul rejoices in a different part of the New Testament. He says, death, where is your sting? There is no sting because the curse has been taken away. That's the freedom we have in Christ if we will remember that, dear believer. One day, our bodies will still go into the ground if our Lord does not return. Our spirits will return to the God who created them. But because the cursed death is what Jesus took upon Himself, we can face that with joy. Even the decline that leads to death, we can face with joy. Oh, you've all known people who have done that. And now you know how they did it. By remembering their Creator. By living in the grace that they confessed and letting it change them. Now, see, not only did Jesus Christ absorb the curse for sin that we should have, but now in the Gospel, He offers us new life, deep fellowship and fulfillment with Him to use those terms I used earlier, we were, we were constrained by sin. And so he broke that. But he doesn't just offer us negative freedom. By his resurrection, he offers us the positive freedom to be the people God meant for us to be by his grace. Isn't that an amazing thought? And so even when we struggle to believe, dear Christian, and we all do, even when we struggle to cast off anxiety and to not let anger rule in our heart, when we forget God and His gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ promises that, that even when we fail to remember our Creator, He remembers us. He approves of us. And He empowers us for joy in this life. Don't you want that? Then place your faith in And trust in Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord today. And if you've done that, fantastic. Ask that the Lord will show you more of His gospel. That He would give you a greater sense of His presence. And so you can depose and rebel against the junk in your heart that weighs you down. So you can live in this promised joy. It is yours for the taking. So whether you've done it already or not... Repent and believe the gospel, even in this moment. Let's pray together. Gracious 